you'd, you'd think that these are, uh, you know, traditional music people would, would gather that, that mystery, you know, is a traditional fact. You know, seeing as they're all so full of mystery. And contradictions. Yeah, contradictions. And chaos. Yeah, it's chaos, clocks, watermelons, you know, it's, it's, it's everything. People actually think I have some kind of uh, fantastic imagination. It gets very uh, lonesome. But uh, traditional music is just uh, it's too unreal to die. It doesn't need to be protected. You know, I mean, in that music, it's the only true valid death you can feel today, not the record player. Like everything else in great demand, people try to own it. It has to do with, like, a, the, the purity thing. I think it's meaninglessness. It's holy. Everybody knows I'm not a folk singer. Welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. We are going to tackle an interesting film for uh, this session. I mean, they, I feel most of the films, if not all the films that we look at, are interesting in some way. But this one uh, is quite different uh, structurally in what it's trying to do. We're going to be looking at the movie I'm Not There from 2007, which is sort of a biopic about Bob Dylan, but definitely approaches the biopic structure drastically differently. We'll be talking about that. Uh, it, it also serves as a musical. So, you know, he's a musician, obviously. So we have plenty of music. Same if you were watching, you know, the Ray Charles one or Walk Hard, or not Walk, Walk Hard is amazing and is different, but um, Walk the Line and other movies like that where they're utilizing the, the music of the focus of the film. And so we obviously have that with Bob Dylan where much of his music is utilized throughout. So we'll be talking about that as well. It was directed by Todd Haynes and written by Todd Haynes and a guy named Oren Moverman. And Moverman's not someone that I'm particularly familiar with. He did write the, adapt, the film adaptation of Jesus' Son, and I have seen that. That's the only one I've seen that he's done, but he has had a lengthy career as a writer and director. Todd Haynes I'm more familiar with. He directed the uh, movie Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, which is kind of a very famous underground film. It was the source of a lawsuit from the Carpenters, and it was never able to be shown legally. He like reenacted aspects of their life and biography with Barbie dolls. This was kind of like a experimental, just out of college film, I think he did. And so it's, it's out there in bootleg versions, but has never been, uh, you know, shown like theatrically or it's not officially available in any way. Uh, so Superstar was his, uh, one of his early projects. He went on to do a lot of other uh, larger kind of independent films such as Velvet Goldmine, Far From Heaven, Carol being one of the more recent ones with various Oscar nominations, and then he did numerous other movies. Um, the film itself, 
for I'm Not There has six iterations of Bob Dylan or Bob Dylan-like characters. And they are Christian Bale playing Jack Rollins and Pastor John is how he's credited. You have Kate Blanchett as Jude Quinn. You have Marcus Carl Franklin as Woody. You have Richard Gere as Billy the Kid, Heath Ledger as Robbie Clark, and Ben Wishaw as Arthur is it Rimbaud. How do you pronounce that? Mm-hmm. Rimbaud? Okay. Uh, you also have Charlotte Gainsborough comes in in a supporting role as Claire Clark, and she is meant to be kind of a combination of two of Dylan's love interests, uh, his wife, Sarah, and one of his girlfriends, the one who's on Free Will and Bob Dylan, but I can't remember her name offhand. Um, Matt, yeah? Susie uh, Rotolo? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I, I saw it last night when I was looking at some of the listings and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I think it leans probably more towards Sarah based on where the relationship goes. But yeah, they definitely pulled in aspects, I think, of Susie as well. You have David Cross coming in as Allen Ginsberg. Julianne Moore plays Alice Fabian, who is a sort of Joan Baez analog. And Bruce Greenwood, who has been seen in a lot of movies, uh, particularly the more recent Star Trek movies, uh, he plays Keenan Jones and also Pat Garrett in the Billy the Kid sections of the film. All right, so we will be digging into that kind of odd, uh, those casting choices, the, the characterization of them, and then the structure of this movie very shortly. But first off, I think we should introduce our panel. Um, we have, all three of us are very big uh, Bob Dylan fans. And uh, so yeah, if you want to, I'll open with if any of you want to say anything about like your kind of connection to Dylan or like how you approach him as an artist or you as a fan. Um, so first off, we have Matt joining us again. Hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. To, good to be here. Uh, Long time Dylan listener. Um, seen him twice live. Listened to pretty much his whole catalog. Maybe some of the bootlegs I haven't heard, but um Long time, long time Dylan fan. Cool, cool. Uh, yeah, one of those live shows was with me. Sure was in Akron, Ohio. Yes. All right, and uh, another big Bob Dylan fan here. We have MJ joining us, who was on our second show way back when. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm MJ, and you know, speaking of our second show, I saw Escape from New York. This doesn't matter for this, but I watched it after that episode, and it was very good. Uh, I love Bob Dylan. I love him. I've loved his music for a long time. I had a college roommate who always played his actual records, and we lived right off 4th Street. Went to the University oh. of Minnesota, which, I yeah, yeah, we... Yeah, we lived right there. Of course, Dylan hated that, hated the U of M, but he's very popular there nonetheless, you know. So, yeah, ever since then. Yeah, you you grew up uh, largely in Minnesota, right? I sure did. I grew up in Minnesota, and different from where Dylan grew up, but 
that because uh, I was southern Minnesota. It's culturally a different state than northern Minnesota where he's from. But he's still, again, very popular. I saw him when I was 16. And so I saw him. I've been I'm 40 now. So I've been listening to his music for a lot of years. You know. Oh, yeah. I still don't know anything about his life. You guys were talking about his exes and stuff. I still don't know. I remember one time, Linton, we were talking about Bob Dylan. I said, oh, I love him. And you said, oh, and you were referencing a, a wife. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And you're like, this is his, <laughs> this is his main person. And I said, I, I just I think we were talking me. about Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, if, yeah. uh, if memory serves. Yeah, I love that song, but I don't know who the hell or what, you know. Uh, well, he has, yeah, he has kept things uh, fairly clandestine, but there's information out there in certain biographies and whatnot. All right, so, yeah, so I uh, I am also a massive Dylan fan. I have seen him four times, uh, twice, uh, no, I guess, I think it's like three times with my dad, I think like twice, uh, maybe like around high school era. And then we went like right after college with my dad and a few, a couple like college friends, and uh, we he played at. And then the the last time was with Matt, which was I don't know, not quite ten years ago, but I don't know. Uh, I have the ticket stub in my wallet, but it is not handy. <laughs> That's very cool that you keep that yeah. ticket stub in your wallet. Uh, but it was probably like 2013, 2014 or something like that. Um, but yeah. I remember when Dylan kind of famously doesn't talk at concerts when he's not singing. He doesn't, he introduces the band and that's essentially the extent of it. I mean, I think back in the day he might've done a little more, but he doesn't anymore. But we saw him, the third time I saw him was at the Columbus Clippers stadium, which is a minor league baseball park. And I guess it's nearby a cemetery, which is not anything I would have like ever known or paid attention to. But we're there, and the one comment that Dylan made to the audience that was not introducing the band was, I never played by a cemetery before. It ain't easy. And then he went into another song. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so, yeah, I love Dylan. I've listened to him. I mean, when I started to get heavy into music in middle school, you know, I was listening to the kind of pop stuff that was coming out like everybody else was. But I was also digging – I mean, I, I grew up listening to, um, you know, classic rock radio my mm-hmm. dad would have on and that kind of thing. So I had a pretty good knowledge of bands of the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s of just growing up hearing this stuff. And then, obviously, once I got heavier into music, I'm like, oh, I have to listen to everything by the Beatles now. And I have to listen to all of this man, Bob Dylan stuff, and all – like, eventually Bowie and all that kind of stuff – so yeah, so I, I've been big on Dylan. I've read uh, various books uh, associated with him over the years. Definitely heavy, heavy in college. Mm-hmm. I have all of his albums on vinyl, like all of the actual like albums, and then a number of like the live ones. All, all thirty nine. Uh, I think it's isn't he like at forty or forty two at this point? I could yeah, be wrong. I mean, something but, like that. But yeah, yes, Matt. It took it took a it took some doing to track down a couple from the '90s because like there's like couple when he did the folk folk uh, uh, he did like folk covers in the early '90s, like yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah, in yeah. his dead dead about. period, right. and they're like fine. But I had to have them to be a completist, and they were not the easiest to uh, track down. But 
but yes, yeah, so I, I have uh, all of his albums, and uh, I have, you know, I've listened to virtually everything, like, from all the, like, the bootleg stuff and everything. So we'll talk more of Dylan as an entity, as an entertainer, and, uh, you know, and a man, if he is, uh, as we go along here. But yeah, so we're all coming from a place of uh, loving Bob Dylan, I think. Um, as far as I'm not there, I'll just say before we kind of open the floor of what we make of it structurally it's very different this is a biopic it's a musical biopic but it does not present the story as bob dylan was born here and he grew up to here and then he he listened to little richard for the first time and loved it and then he went on to do this like it does not do the beat by beat kind of boring structure that most biopics will do of we're going to follow this guy's whole life regardless of if it fits well for a story or if it's emotional or anything and a lot of them will do that this takes a very fragmented approach this has as i said six actors portraying different aspects of dylan none of them are named bob dylan or robert zimmerman or anything they are named they're given names that are like reminiscent of elements of his career or pulled from things of his career. Like Billy the Kid, he was in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, so that's why that character is named for that. Woody, the there's a young black child who's named Woody. He calls himself Woody Guthrie. That's to play off of how Bob Dylan adored Woody Guthrie and wanted to be him, essentially. Uh, Jude Quinn is playing off the song uh, The Mighty Quinn, but also I think it's meant to evoke the Judas that that character ends up being called later in the film and in real life. So all these um, all these characters have like kind of uh, connections to Bob Dylan's greater career. But yeah, so it's very fragmented. You're following these characters in their own little mini stories. In a couple ways they cross paths, but only a couple times. So most of the time they're just completely separate. It's almost like they're their own extended short films that we're seeing in, in segments that are like fitted up against each other. And yeah, and then all throughout it, we're listening to Bob Dylan songs. And so yeah, it, it, it makes for a very different experience than you would be used to if you have seen plenty of other biopics or musical biopics. So structurally, that's kind of what's going on. We'll dig more in the structure. We'll dig more in all this other stuff as well. But uh, that's just to give you kind of overview. If you are unaware of this or if you saw it was a movie that was coming out, you know, 15-ish years ago, and you're like, oh, they did some Bob Dylan movie, but you never actually checked it out. That's kind of the crux of uh, what the deal is. All right. So without further ado... What do we make of I'm Not There? Yeah, uh, I'll I'll go ahead and start. Um, man, I'll tell you what. So I, I own this movie. Um, I saw it in the theater when it came out and, and then bought it on DVD. I don't know how I feel about it. You know, I have a much greater appreciation for it now. Mm -hmm. um, now that I, you know. That sounds like you feel good about it. I think I feel good about it. I feel good about it. <laughs> Um, I feel good about it now. Um, I think when it came out, I was a little bit like, I don't know. It seemed like uh, Mr. Haynes was trying a bit too hard. But um, now that I have a much greater, you know, in my, you know, adult life, I have a much greater appreciation for Bob Dylan. 
I've learned much more about his life. I've seen some of the supporting or some of the back material, like Don't Look Back, the the documentary by uh, D.A. Pennebaker. And, you know, so I do, I get it. I get the movie. I get the movie now in ways that uh, I didn't maybe in 2007. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorite films. I haven't... I, I think it's perfect for him. I, and I like the experimental structure of the narrative quite a bit. But there are things I don't like necessarily, but even those, I, I don't know. I've found ways to excuse... I didn't even need to watch it in preparation for this because so many images from the film are burned into my brain. You know, there's so much to it now, like Heath Ledger doing that James Dean Dylan thing and then it all going awry. There's so many images from the film that are almost Dylan-esque in that they're so they're so deep in my consciousness, almost like Dylan is like when you guys were talking about the albums and different albums mean different things to me based on the fact that I almost lived in them. Like I don't listen to Nashville skyline anymore because of Melissa, you know, that was a, I had to move. I have not listened to Nashville skyline since this movie came out since 2007, but like Keith Ledger telling his friend, you know, you, you're talking to me in a totally different voice than you talked to me in 10 minutes ago. And Charlotte Gainsbourg looking at the images of her art after all those, after their f- fight. And she's looking at those images. And I've always wondered, did they sell or not sell? Like the image is kind of enigmatic. But I always thought those pieces were very beautiful too. And there's all sorts of stuff. When, when Dylan meets... Uh, Allen Ginsberg that's Allen Ginsberg <laughs> Allen Ginsberg I just love that like the relativity of it David Cross is a fantastic uh, Allen Ginsberg in this so good there are uh, there are so many great performances in this um, you mentioned Heath Ledger which is one of the standouts for me um, Kate Blanchett is uh, phenomenal as Jude Quinn Kate Blanchett makes the movie for me. I like so many aspects of the movie, but she is the heart and soul in terms of capturing Dylan. I mean, mm-hmm. I think her storyline is is potentially more interesting than some, uh, definitely more interesting than some of them. But um, and then like there's some great visuals they associate with her and how they're shooting it because they're trying to make it look like eight and a half. But yeah, she. I mean, she just embodies Dylan. Like, she has mannerisms. She has facial expressions. <laughs> like, she's... It's a woman playing Bob Dylan, and I buy it completely. <laughs> like, Yeah, she 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 is, for me, the standout. Um, you know, very, uh, very true to Dylan in that time period. Um, I think it should be mentioned that she did win uh, the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. And okay. And was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, did you see who she lost to? Uh, you know what? I did not. 
Okay. Uh, I did not. But someone, uh, I mean, I'm just going to say probably not as good. I don't know. If you, if you have a sec at some point, uh, check that for us because uh, I think it would be interesting to see who she lost to because yeah, I'm sure it was a fine performance. But, yeah, I mean, she, for me, I mean, I, I like her in anything I ever see her in, but she truly stands out. And, and MJ, you mentioned, like, that moment with Ginsburg. I love her as Dylan geeking out over Ginsburg. Like, that's Alan Ginsburg, man. Mm -hmm. um, which is just, like, very true. And G Dylan did have some of those geek out moments from things I've read. I know when he first met Johnny Cash, he went up to him, and Johnny Cash is, like, towers over Dylan with his height. And Dylan just, like, looks at him and then, like, walks all the way around Johnny Cash and then, like, comes back to Johnny Cash's face and just goes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, like, Dylan will do these kind of, like, performance things where sometimes it's just genuine, like, geeking out as a music guy. So I, I love that little moment, and yeah. I also like her My Salvation, where she's staring up into the sky when Ginsburg asks uh, what's left. Mm. So... Yeah, she's a big draw for me on this. Did you uh, find that matter? Yes, so she lost to Jennifer Hudson uh, for... for the for Dreamgirls. Oh, okay, yeah, I never saw that one. But... Uh, neither, neither did I. Um, yeah, I would say uh, by far for me the my favorite. That is one of my favorite periods of Dylan. Yeah. So her performance during that really kind of spoke to me. Um, for those I who haven't. For those that haven't watched it, this her character is like the mid-60s Dylan. It is Dylan going electric Dylan, mm -hmm. which is when Dylan was being rejected by a lot of the folkies because they saw him as rejecting them because he right. went electric at the Newport Folk Festival and they saw him as selling out and, you know, not continuing the movement like uh, like he should have been in their eyes. So he's right. a the Jude Quinn character is a particularly combative uh, Dylan incarnation because it's kind of Dylan against the world or against the music establishment or whatever. Right, and and it follows it it, um, it follows Jude Quinn on a tour of Europe, which uh, mirrors Dylan's tour in sixty what was that sixty five sixty six right before his motorcycle accident. Yeah, I think that's the era. It's yeah, I think that's when it's supposed mm -hmm. to be set. They don't, they don't, they play, play kind of fast and loose with dates. I think for yeah. this, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's one of the things I like about this film is that you know so many biopics uh, get harped on because they take liberties with the facts, and this film it doesn't matter because there almost are no facts with Dylan. You put that in the notes. I guess I, I guess I disagree with that in that okay. like well there's books I mean there's auto there's biographies out there that that cover stuff and there's what he's written in cry like he he keeps stuff close to the vest but there's information out there. It's like there he's is. not a complete mystery. He's not a complete mystery, but Chronicles is like he lies throughout that book. Yeah, I've never I've I've read that there's like people who've claimed stuff. I've never dug in like how much is you know proven one way or another you know and even like on on something as simple as his name he hasn't given a you know a straight answer 
Um, you know, recently there were, you know, the papers that he wrote to his friend, uh, whose name I can't remember. Uh, they came out recently. They were sold for uh, a, a pretty, pre uh, pretty big sum, uh, and, and they were published recently in Rolling Stone, and where he talked about it. But you know, there I say I, I'm I'm being a bit um, hyperbolic when I sure. say, of course, there of course there are facts about Dylan that you know that are established. But he has worked so hard to create a mystery around himself. Even when he came to New York, he was not clear with people, with his first manager about his origins. And so, so I think, you know, what, they, what was the, you mentioned something about the name. You mean just like why he chose the name? Why he something? chose Dylan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought he said, I mean, I've read some stuff where I, I maybe he's given conflicting reports, which is very much his MO, but I thought he chose, he didn't want to be Bobby because there was like Bobby B, Bobby V and Bobby Darren, a lot of Bobbies. And so he just thought that would kind of get like bogged down. So he thought Bob would stand out. And then uh, he, he said he chose Dylan for Dylan Thomas, but I don't know. No, he, no. He, well, I mean, well, he, he has said that again, he may have given conflicting reports elsewhere, but I have read that, that that's, but he has also, from. he has also said uh, he hates he does not like Dylan Thomas and did not choose Dylan Thomas for, or did not choose Dylan for Dylan Thomas. But it's totally in keeping with him that he may Absolutely. have said both of those things. Yes. And that is what, and that is what I am. That is kind of the root of what I'm getting at is that in this movie, you know, in that Todd Haynes does not set out to tell a story with this. Yeah. With this movie. Um, it is not, like you said, it is not Walk the Line or Rocket Man or any of these many musical biopics that follow the same pattern. There is no, you know, each, each one is an aspect of his life. And um, it is, uh, I think it's, it's, it's what makes this movie very inaccessible for people who aren't Dylan fans. But it's also what makes this movie great for people who are. MJ, you got anything? Oh, a lot. Uh, I saw a documentary. I don't know which one, but I feel very confident that you all will. That took place during that European tour right after Dylan went electric. I think it was the one Martin Scorsese did. No Scorsese direction. did. Scorsese did. Uh, don't uh, or no, uh, no, direction. no. No direction home. home. No direction home came out in two thousand and five, uh, which followed Dylan up until through that period up until his motorcycle accident in sixty six. Right. So I liked. I think uh, for me the overlap. So there's a central thing, and then there's all the different iterations and mirror bounce off views and separations of degrees of separation from the thing like no direction homes a documentary but then the Kate Blanchett part covers the same time period so there's some crossover but then that played with gender and did and facts and stuff to make it different it's an iteration and i think this is about that in a lot of ways 
how there's something happening and then there's all the reactions to what's happening and the past and future, the facts or the myths. And I think this film is kind of about that. And so I'm listening to you all talk about all the different things about Bob Dylan or Robert Zimmerman. And then it's just so interesting how they run parallel. And that's why this structure for this film, in my opinion, is so perfect because there's the layers involved in the person and all his various iterations. And then there's the layers involved in the film. And it's not necessarily logical, though it is tied together thematically. Um, well, and, and Matt, or MJ, sorry, I, uh, I know you and I have discussed in the past, like you, I mean, you pursue film. You're in, uh, was a UCLA program right now, right? Yeah, I mean, Actually, my, so this is a name drop, but I say it only because actually I have a conflict of interest. <laughs> my advisor, Phyllis Nage, mm -hmm. is worked with Todd Haynes on Carol. She won the Oscar, or was nominated for the Oscar for Carol, for writing Carol, which Haynes directed. And so yeah. I guess I... I love that one, too. And, of course, Blanchett's so good in that film as well. Um, but yeah, anyway. You, well, I was just going to say that you, uh, we've talked before, like, you're not a big fan of kind of linear narratives or three-act structure anyway. Like, that you're, you know, you uh, tend to gravitate toward things that are more experimental or you at least think those things are more interesting. So it's not surprising when you open with saying that you felt felt this is like one of your favorite i mean i know you love dylan but that aspect i would think would amplify it for you because this is a movie that just kind of barrels onto the screen of like we're just doing this deal with it yes and thank you for inviting me on because it is that's dylan-esque or um i'm not there-esque too because I do love experimental narrative films. So you, you know, you can get into like brackage and the, all the way into the experimental. I like narrative films, you know, the 90-minute narrative films, but ones that are done differently than, as you said, the three-act structure. So I love that this film exists, and I was able to see it in Mankato and that they uh, took these chances. Yes, I do. I love it. So that's good. You know me so well. I hope that I know you as well. You know, I hope that I don't have a podcast, but we'll sort this out after the show. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, like in, in terms of the structure, yeah, we, we've talked about it a bit of like, it's very fragmented and um, I, I myself am not a big fan of biopics. I only own a handful of them just because they, they tend to be in my estimation they tend to be essentially Oscar bait movies, of which there's nothing wrong with writing a movie and trying to do something important or writing a movie and thinking you can win awards. But there's something about certain kinds of movies, and I think biopics fall in that cat that category where it's like, okay, we're going to do this movie and there's going to be these crushing scenes and it's going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to win an Oscar for this. And it becomes its own thing where it's it's just a movie produced essentially – for recognition or whatever. Um, and, and, and I think it ultimately ends up hurting the final film. And so you're just sort of like, ah, okay. Like I never saw the Elton John rocket man thing. And it maybe was it's, fine. 
Right, and that's that's the way I, I usually feel about them. I kind of walk out, and I'm just like, yeah. Um, uh, MJ, yeah. Before we move on from this, I wouldn't have stopped you if it weren't important, but I feel like this is an I'm not there moment because if we're talking about Rocket Man, we can't just talk about the Elton John biopic. The true Rocket Man came out in 1997. And it was a Disney film about an oddball scientist who goes to Mars. That's true. And, and, and farts in his spacesuit. Um, that's a classic. Yes. I have not seen that one. Well, you've it got has some one of, one of the guys from uh, Half Baked in it. I can't remember his name. Harlan, Harlan. something, I think. But okay. but yeah, I, I think like a lot of uh, a lot of them, and it's not just biopics, but I think a lot of biopics fall in that category. I mean, I only own a few, and like Walk the Line is one. It uh, I don't know that it broke free from it totally, but I think it one I just like Johnny Cash and his music, and then it has really strong performances. But mm-hmm. the the two that come to mind that I do enjoy um, that I felt like took some chances are The Social Network. And Steve mm. Jobs, which both of those are by Aaron Sorkin. And I remember seeing Aaron Sorkin on a talk show, I think, uh, you know, doing like talking about the Steve Jobs movie. And the Steve Jobs movie, if you haven't seen it, if it's been a while, it's structured as he looks at three different periods of Steve Jobs' life and he doesn't do the whole shebang. And he's like focused on these as like episodic things. And he talked on this talk show like how. He said he doesn't like and he didn't want to make a movie that was like, oh, we're going to watch this guy and he grows up and he does all these great things and he coughs and he dies, which he said is basically what most biopics are like that. That's kind of just this like we know the structure and then he finds it boring and that doesn't really work for a story. And I thought that that really when I saw that, it like hit hit me on the head of like, yeah, that is what's wrong with biopics is they just follow the same boring structure and they aren't approaching their subject and making a movie about the subject they're taking a structure and saying i'm gonna throw elton john into this or i'm gonna throw this person into this and again maybe rocket man's great i don't know i haven't seen it but any any biopic you've seen i feel it's just like we're gonna wedge this celebrity into this format and what i think is great about i'm not there is the fragmentation the chameleon aspect the shifting of you know this character that character near the end where we have certain characters talking commenting on like not knowing who they are or richard Gere's character near the end is talking about waking up as one person and going to bed as someone else and that's like which which is dialogue it's straight from dylan Dylan. quote yeah yeah they, they they pulled quotes straight from like dylan speeches and other things so like they it's clear that Haynes not only approaches as a Dylan fan, but approach it as how would I make a movie about Bob Dylan? If I want to capture what I can of the essence of him, which so much of it is you can't. That's the enigma of him. That's the mystique that he's intentionally tried to create for 60 years. Um, but that's that's how that's the kind of movie that you would make. And so if you're going to do a movie about Elton John, you should be how do I capture Elton John? Or if you're going to do a movie about Steve Jobs, how do I capture Steve Jobs? Like that's how I think these biopics 
should be approached and then you dictate the form from there but i think most of the time yeah. they just take the celebrity and it's like oh you go in here you're gonna we're gonna fit you in this box and then we're just gonna watch you know we're gonna watch this as though we were reading a biography and and for me that ends up being usually pretty boring uh, hmm. But yeah, that's one thing that I truly love about this is, and, and you, this structure would not work with many other people. It wouldn't make sense to do this film and it have be it about Paul McCartney, or oh, even, certainly not, or no, even no, no, no. about like Elton John. Probably, I mean, I don't know his right. biography, but I I doubt you would have that uh, kind of like the fragmented thing would make so much sense. I think David Bowie would make sense because David hmm. Bowie redefined himself every album and different eras of his career. So you could do a very similar fragmentation thing with David Bowie, but for another celebrity, you would need some other totally different approach. So structurally, I think the movie is like fascinating, but also incredibly fitting for the subject that they're, that they're focused on. Completely, completely agree, Linton. I think this is a perfect fit for Dylan as the character, Dylan as the myth dylan as the as the figure that he has created for himself yeah and then also as the personal life which you get into with the robbie clark character the um heath ledger uh, played by heath ledger and yeah. his uh with the you know highlighting the relationships of dylan's life and and really his uh failure to have a uh, a, a relationship with you know with his with his wife Sarah that became so public uh so public as a breakup yeah and I, I think like one of the benefits and this was I haven't watched this movie in years um you know I I saw it shortly after it came out I think and then you know I've owned it so I don't know the last time I saw it maybe way back when but I think the movie isn't afraid to show some flaws in Dylan's character, mm -hmm. which some biopics, you know, I mean, they'll show like, oh, he was addicted to drugs or he struggled with this or that. But those are usually shown as like, oh, this is something they've got to overcome. Exactly. And then they do. And then they're great again. Right. But uh, here, like there's some points where it's just like the characters again, they're never named Dylan. But some of the characters of the, representing him are not shown in the best light. Like he, they show him mm. like having issues with women in like the Jude Quinn character and in the Robbie Clark character. Just certain comments he makes that I don't know if Dylan actually said them, but I think they're based on some of how he acted at the time, and then definitely how he acted toward Sarah. Like I, I know he was cheating on her and stuff, so that that's legit. Um, the stuff he says at the civil rights award ceremony um, with uh, Christian Bale goes on kind of like a tirade where he's drunk and he's talking about Lee Harvey Oswald who had just shot Kennedy a few weeks prior. And he makes some kind of troubling comments that was like Dylan, Dylan actually did this mm -hmm. Dylan kind of trying to make a grander point and failing because he's drunk off his ass <laughs> And, yeah, and it, said, it, it doesn't come off very well. Good. So this is at the, um, I forget what, what it is in the, in the, uh, in the movie, what organization, but it's the, he's receiving the Thomas Paine or the Tom Paine award. I think it might um, be that in the movie. 
I think it, I think you're right. And uh, he says something along the lines of Lee Harvey, Ar- Lee Harvey Oswald. I see some of himself in me, or I see some of myself in him. Something, yeah. something yeah. along those lines. And and it is. Um, this is at the point where Dylan starts to turn away from the folk movement. In his so in the movie, uh, Jack Rollins, Christian Bale's character, is the Greenwich Village. Bob Dylan, the the yeah. folk, the protest movement, the protest singer Bob Dylan, times they are a change in free will and Bob Dylan, that time period. And it's it's right on the cusp of when Dylan starts to really f- turn away from the folk movement with, um, you know, songs like My Back Pages, the 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 album another from another side of Bob Dylan that that really kind of begins to begins to turn around and he begins to be begins to become disillusioned with the folk movement and you see that through um julian moore in uh, a documentary setting as the joan baez analog talking about how jack rollins tells her that a song can never change someone's mind so i thought that was i thought that was interesting well, and Jude Quinn, the Jude Quinn character, says a very similar thing mm-hmm. when uh, he's being interviewed, and says like uh, a song's ne- uh, you know a song's never going to like uh, keep people picketing or a picket line picketing or um, you know people marching. So they have a similar thing, and then the the other uh, bit that I thought is interesting of like you know not an attack on Dylan's character, but like showing some flaws is you have the Mister Jones character, which is definitely named after the character in uh, oh, yeah. Ballad of a Thin Man, right? Ballad of a Thin Man. Yeah, and uh, so you have the the reporter who is, like, inspired by at least one reporter who kind of boxed Dylan in back in the day, but I think probably more of an amalgamation of various ones. Um, but he very pointedly is sort of, like, just calling Dylan out of, like, yeah, this is all bullshit, right? Or questioning Dylan's sincerity. And you never get really a straight answer of whether or not you know, I mean, the the Mr. Jones character is shown as like being villainous and we as the audience are meant to be on Dylan's side, essentially. But with Dylan's like, oh, I'm this way, I'm that way, I'm this thing. It's like, well, Jones isn't totally wrong. And, and the movie kind of like leaves that lingering of like, yeah, how much of this, how, how sincere is he? And so so it's it's just something I think on a review, it's interesting that it has those kind of negativity, that negativity and those negative portrayals, especially since Bob Dylan signed off on this project and agreed mm-hmm. to the use of music. And he liked it. Yes. He said uh, it was we'll, a good we'll, film. Yeah, we'll, I'll talk about that when we get near the end. But yeah, so Dylan, um, when Haynes was going to work on this, he I read that when he did Velvet Goldmine, which I saw years and years ago, hmm. um, that was like, a rough analog of David Bowie and it's about the glam rock movement and Bowie wouldn't give him the use of the songs. And so he's like, all right, well I'll just kind of make it like a, a rough approximation, but he felt doing Dylan, he couldn't do this movie without the songs. And so he had to like write up a kind of treatment and get Dylan to sign off. And yet Dylan was, was cool with it and let him roll with stuff. I mean, I'm sure Dylan didn't necessarily know all the dialogue that was going to be included, but still like, uh, as, as Matt, as yeah, as Matt said, like ultimately Dylan liked it. So I'll, I'll talk about those comments, uh, here at the end. 
All right, uh, MJ, you got anything on? We've been back and forth here for a little bit. Which part? There's a lot. <laughs> what? Whatever you got, just keep it rolling. Well, I like the documentary aspect of the film. You mentioned Joan Baez, and I like the documentary, but I like the fact that even that's wound into like a higher kind of poetic truth with the Rimbaud stuff and mm -hmm. the Rimbaud line or the whatever you want to call it. And uh, again, I and even you could follow that all the way to us talking about it now because it's all part of it. It's all part of the layers of, and it doesn't even have to be Bob Dylan. That's what's so interesting about what you all are talking about. Like I heard Christian Bale in an interview about the film saying how he, it's, he was so fascinated by the fact he called it like method acting without knowing your method acting. And it just, <laughs> I'm thinking how sincere am I? How sincere are any of us? And like, it's interesting because we're obviously going to change. I've changed quite a bit and he changed a lot, but then he did so publicly. And of course, with this film and everything, you know, him winning the Nobel, it all is a part of this. It becomes a metaphor. His personal individual changes become this metaphor that is then reflected back on us and becomes about our changes and it's interesting and I think a documentary is a great way to, I'm glad they added that in but then there so there's the documentary the Joan Baez and then there's Ben Winshaw but then as you said there's that reporter who's like I'm gonna fucking get you man the the one in I know of the I remember the one in Europe you know he's like I'm gonna get you you know I know I can see through you and Actually, the fact that I think I thought about this, too, with Dylan and him liking the film, the fact that someone can quote unquote see through him wouldn't bother him at all. I can see him smiling and saying, yes, that's part of it, too. It's probably what I would say or what we would say if we were famous. Someone is making a movie about us. You just say, well, yeah, that's part of it. You know, the negative portrayals are quotes or moments are part of it mm. you know? well and i'm sure he's well used to it at this point mm. oh god yeah i remember this interview with ed bradley where bradley was like own it you've done all this stuff and everybody loves you and dylan's like well yeah this week they do you know it's, it's not <laughs> yeah he's been through quite a few of a thing and you said the Heath Ledger, Matt, what's interesting is you said that was about relationships. And of course, there are so many different ways to view it, I think. And that's totally cool what you said. I see that 100%. But I think in addition to that, if I can yes and you, I think that's about this too, the way that we're viewed. The, what's so great about that Heath Ledger and then his wife being an artist and all the different those conversations that he has, that one conversation with the friend where he says, you're talking to me in a different tone now. And mm -hmm. it's, that's about image versus truth and the way people react to that and the way we react to it or would react to it if we were in that situation. It's about fame. It's about change within people watching you. 
I another thing about Dylan, I read, I think I read this somewhere, but about the autographs where people want his autographs, and he said that's so complicated because we're all. It was when he was very young he wrote this. He said, "Well, I, it's very complicated when people ask for my autograph." I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, was, I don't think I've seen this one. Mm-mm. I don't remember where I read it. You know, I don't remember any of this. I. If you don't know this about me, I'm a recovering drug addict. And I say that just to say I smoked a lot of weed in the 90s, like a lot of marijuana. And so my long-term memory is good, but I, do, I can't always piece it together. It's very lunar. It's very like it, there are stars there, but that doesn't matter. What matters is I think it was in some album notes and he was like, he was talking about how it's very complicated when people ask for his autograph because they're the same. Like he wants their autograph and that curiosity. So I'm sure with his intelligence and the way people have been looking at him and the way he plays with that gaze, his life, his art has not all been about this, but one of the things it's been about and what we're all talking about, what this podcast is a part of, an extension of, is that gaze. That relationship between viewer and viewed. You know, MG, I think what you're what you're hitting on is very smart, and I think it's very it's very poignant, especially when you because when you talk about Dylan, I think Dylan has never been comfortable with his. Certainly, he's never been comfortable with his with the with his position in pop in culture. You know, he talks anytime he's in the press, even today, uh, even today, his responses, while they are much more muted than they were certainly in the 60s, um, there's a great scene in this movie that's based on a real scene where he is giving interviews and the entire the press corps is really throwing throwing questions about him why do you consider yourself a protest singer why are you a lot of are those are like to... real they were real like he had interviews like that and some of yes, those questions this was real. legit yeah this was these were real these were real and his responses this was uh you see this in a couple of different instances the scene i'm talking about was the kate blanchett jude quinn uh scene where he kind of just throws back answers that that he's really dismissing himself dismissing his role dismissing his importance he said at one point um i think i don't this wasn't in the film but it it was in the real life interview he just calls he says i'm just a song and dance man yeah except i don't dance right yes yeah i mean like he was famous especially back then for giving flippant jokey answers or just kind of vicious but still funny answers Mm. when they were trying to box him in or sometimes they weren't even trying to box him in they were just like asking the way they would ask any rock or pop star and he was not about to have it one of the more fun ones um so i remember i was in college when this happened but dylan got a lot of flack because he appeared he like had a song and appeared in a Victoria's Secret ad, mm-hmm. and a bunch of people were like, "How could he do this? Voice of a generation!" And like he's selling out and all this kind of stuff. And so there's this big thing. And then a professor of mine 
Um, I may have heard this beforehand, but I remember him pointing it out. So it might've been the first I'd heard of it. And he was saying like, well, anyone who knows Dylan well enough knows that there's an interview from way back when that yeah. they asked him about selling out. And he said, Oh, if I ever sold out, it'd probably be the woman in her underwear. And so the Victoria's Secret people possibly knew that, or just by happenstance, they asked Bob Dylan to do this. And he's like, well, this is perfect. So yeah, I'm going to uh, go along with this. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Like uh, he has had, uh, alongside his singing career, I think he's had kind of a separate side career of fucking with the press and public. Mm. That's Absolutely. Been a, that's been a, a longstanding hobby of his. All right. So let's, uh, Matt, earlier you talked about like the accessibility of this. And I did mm. want to address that for a little bit. So how accessible do we think this is to a person? Let's say they don't hate Bob Dylan, because if you hate Bob Dylan, you hate his music. If you're one of those people, it's like his voice is awful and like, fuck them. But for those people, they're not going to get much out of this movie. But if you are like someone who like just kind of knows rough idea, you've heard some of the famous songs or whatever, and you're walking into this, how accessible is this movie to the average film goer with some rough knowledge of Bob Dylan? Yeah, so I would say not very accessible. Um, it depends. It depends on who the person is. If there's someone who loves film who who is into non-linear storytelling and into character like into really deep character studies i think they would get something out of this movie if it's someone who knows bob dylan who really is a is a diehard bob dylan fan they would love this movie they would get a lot out of this movie if you just pulled someone off the street who's heard like a rolling stone and blowing in the wind and um knows you know bob dylan is they're going to be very confused if all they know about this movie is that it's a biopic about Bob Dylan, they are going to be very confused. MJ? It's so hard to say. Like, I have to think back. I hear what Matt's saying about the confusion. I think about this so much because I try to think about, I'm way too connected to Bob Dylan to say with this one, but I think about films I saw when I was a kid that were very strange maybe, or necess not necessarily logical, but I don't know if I like the way y'all are saying analog. I don't know if there's an exact analog for this. I think it would be a very different experience. I think that you would get something out of it. It's very hard to tell what people would or would not get out of something. But, yeah, it's very hard to tell what people would or would not get out of something, but it it would be very different, and I agree with Matt that they'd be confused. I'm confused right now, and I don't even know why. I mean, people get confused, but it wouldn't have it would be a very different experience. Well, I know our uh, Matt, our friend Chris saw this. I think he saw it in the theater, maybe with Eric. I don't think I actually did see it in a theater, but I remember him not liking it. And, you know, he's just sort of casual, like, you know, he knows some Dylan stuff. So I think his critique yeah. was that it, it wasn't made for a wide audience. It was made for people who know Dylan. And like, 
at the end of the day, it's like, for me, I guess that critique is like, okay, and? <laughs> like, I, I mean, on the one hand, I don't know that all art needs to, you know, needs to go broad. This is, That's not what the attempt is. Mm-hmm. But also, like, Bob Dylan is such a massive pop culture figure. There's sort of this, well, maybe you should learn more about Bob Dylan then. <laughs> like, and that's not directed at Chris, but just... You know, we're not talking about some obscure folk artist. We're talking about someone who made such an impact on pop culture and popular music. And so, yeah, it, it, it takes some cliff notes. It takes some things you need. Like, I think you said in the notes, Matt, that, like, you saw it initially as a Bob Dylan fan, but you didn't know as much about his background and some of the, you know, some of these interviews and that kind of stuff. So you're kind of coming, walking in like, oh, I like Bob Dylan. But now mm. you're revisiting it. Were you saying like that now you yeah. see it completely different because you know what these moments are meant to represent? Right. And and when I say it's not accessible, like not all art needs to be accessible. Like I would say Jackson Pollock is not the most accessible artist compared to I don't know Thomas Kincaid, but one of them <laughs> I think is a lot better. You know. So. Um, you know, I, the painter I think of light, obviously. Uh, sure. Okay. Um, so I, I think when I say it's not not accessible, I, I think it's it's not like I don't know. I was trying to look up. I don't know how this did uh, commercially. I guess it has a, you know, it was pretty well received critically. Um, it's got a seventy seven percent on Rotten Tomato according to Wikipedia. And uh, 73 out of 100 on Metacritic. So This is actually something I usually check, and I forgot to do it this time. But looking at Wikipedia, apparently the budget was $20 million, and it made $11.7 million. So it was a box office failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm not surprised, right? I don't think it was made to be a commercial success. I think it's a good movie. I think it's a good film. Um, and it's, uh, man, it's got great music in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about the music here in a minute. I would, um, I would recommend. I don't know if I would recommend the movie. I would definitely recommend the soundtrack to to some to a casual Dylan fan. All right, well, we'll circle that back around when we get to the recommendations. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it's a good time. I'll just throw in like Dil- I mentioned earlier, like Dylan, his comments on it. So Dylan was apparently interviewed in 2012. Um, for you know other stuff in Rolling Stone, and they asked him about I'm Not There. So I guess that was probably the first time he had publicly commented on it. And so a journalist asked him whether he liked the film, and Dylan responded, yeah, I thought it was all right. Do you think that director was worried that people would understand it or not? I don't think he cared one bit. I just think he wanted to make a good movie. I thought it looked good, and those actors were incredible. So, like... Uh, kind of what you're saying, Matt, of that, uh, yeah, yeah, this movie, I think, doesn't really give a fuck what you think about it. And um, other than the goals that it has, that it's setting, of, of trying to capture Dylan as best it can, as best anyone can, in trying to... And it's it's not like they aren't caring. I mean, clearly, every actor in this movie gives a shit about what they're doing and is trying to capture Dylan or whoever these ancillary people in his life are. And then the visual level that that's, there's, there's one aspect. I think MJ, you kind of mentioned it. I do think people could appreciate this as just an audio visual experience because 
because visually it it, swa- it changes style. We we have this like old timey stuff with Woody where it's set in the fifties but looks sort of like Oh Brother Where Art Thou. They're trying to get this Dust Bowl vibe. Then you get this like full on turn of the century vibe with the uh, Billy the Kid sections. Um, you've got the Jude Quinn stuff is in black and white and it's supposed to look like eight and a half and other European films. You've got the, um, Bobby, the Bobby, not Bobby, uh, Robbie, Robbie. Um, Yeah. The Robbie section is, I mean, that's just kind of shot more standard, like dramatic. So it just creates a different kind of, I mean, it's not as visual as some of these others, but it, it, it's presence, you know, allows these other ones to kind of shine a little bit. And then let's see and the christian bale one i would say is is a similar kind of like straightforward stuff but yeah there's some like very good visual stuff going on and then the use of music so even if you're a casual dylan fan i think just kind of you can go along for the ride musically and and me watching it this time like we've we've touched about it like non-linear storytelling and that kind of thing like it almost felt like non-story storytelling like it's not it's not really trying to tell a story Hmm. um let me find the comment i made like so it's it's all about fragments moments episodes and feelings and so it's trying to give you make you walk away with an impression of it's like an impressionistic painting or you mentioned jackson pollock earlier it's like it's it's trying to give you a mood and an idea of Bob Dylan and his importance, but most of the, like the stories of these individual characters, I don't feel like like they don't necessarily have like three act structures of this is this character's arc. They go they go on their separate journeys, but I think like a number of them are just kind of like all right, and that's just where this this period ends. We aren't trying to say anything definitive about this period necessarily. We're just, this is just one of the shades of Bob Dylan that we're going to give you. I want to talk about Richard Gere. Yeah, that's, for me, the weakest part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to I know what MJ thinks about it. Because for me, it was, um, like, I just wasn't, it didn't, um... You know, it didn't connect. It didn't have that connection that I felt with um, with the other, like, with the other threads. Yeah, I agree. But I think about that one. So first, let me say that I agree with both of you about it. And then let me add something that's just an apology or something I've thought about with because, Matt, I did read your comments as well before, and I liked them. The people listening don't know this, but Linton, being prepared, sends out questions. And so I read your response about Richard Gears. And uh, here's the thing is, I thought, like, why do I like this? Okay, so the, you go away from Bob Dylan, and you go away in the Rimbaud, you go away from his gender, of course, which is cool. I like that for a number of representational reasons. But then you go away from his person in Rimbaud. You become a different person. That's cool, too. And But then the Richard Gere goes away in a way that a lot of people, including myself, find not as satisfying. And 
the thing is, is you look at, okay, if, to talk about this, I have to say something. And that is that I'm a Buddhist. I practice Zen meditation every day. And I have for, I don't know, years. And Richard Gere is too. And I think about this. I think about Zen a lot with this film. And I'm not trying to shove this in. It's just, it's very interesting what people make meaning out of and what they don't and how things don't connect, but then they sometimes do. Uh, so the Richard Gere part, if you put Richard Gere, Todd Haynes is so smart and he put Richard Gere in this. And Richard Gere isn't the person, he had every actor at his disposal and he chose Richard Gere. So there's something discordant about that, but I would say that maybe it's, and I could be stretching, but I think when you put Richard Gere in there, who's not known as a boxcar guy, he's not that person. You could have, we could think of any number of haggard actors. Mm who could do that and he didn't choose them he chose richard gear this and i'm not saying that it's literally has to do with buddhism i'm just talking about like what do we think of when we think richard gear and then that led me to my own zen non-linear thoughts which are fine but what i'm saying is i feel like there's something discordant purposefully discordant which of course this film is in certain ways or purposefully non-linear purposefully you know what it is and um, intentionally what it is so i think a lot about the casting of richard gear and how that doesn't allow me to enter into a satisfying hobo moment and why would todd haynes do that and how does that speak to well then you got to think about like the dichotomy of Woody Guthrie and Dylan. Uh, Dylan went to New York, but he's actually from the country. And Woody Guthrie played that country music, but he's actually a city guy. Like, it's this discordancy. And again, it goes back to the myth, but it's a different examination of that myth. And I think, actually, Gear is about the most opposite of those guys. I mean, think about it. American Gigolo. Yeah, he was in Days of Heaven. But even in that, he was the man's just so beautiful and so classy, and he's almost got a mirror-like face. And then he's the most famous American Buddhist that exists. He's, and I guess you can, in an ugly way, in a well, maybe not ugly, but you could make that connection to like, you know, Dharma bums, I guess. But. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily. I would say that it's more purposeful. It's a purposeful disallowing of the hobo experience. And why? To see the falsity in that? Is he trying to show us the falsity with a false representation? Maybe. And that's very interesting. But again, that, that might be pejorative in terms of what Richard Gere did. And I don't think he did anything bad. I don't think he's a bad actor. He's just who he is. So it's interesting. I don't know. And I think about it a lot. And I thought about it after your comments. But I'm well, not my, sure. Well, my, my issue ahead. with that section isn't like, I don't think Gear does anything bad. I just think like the writing of that section 
just kind of leaves you hanging out there. I mean, not that, as I mentioned, like, not all these sections follow necessarily, like, an arc or we're going to go on this journey with this satisfying conclusion with this this iteration. Like, some of them have that, but, um, like, like, Woody, we we see him early on and then he kind of drops off and then he pops up near the end with Richard Gere in this kind of one of the few moments that Dylan iterations have any kind of crossover. Um, There's that one. And then Jude Quinn is seen in a yearbook and it's uh, like, like it's supposed to be his, you know, high school yearbook, but they actually have Christian Bale's face in in there. So, uh, well, and then there's one more where uh, Robbie, Robbie, the, the actor uh, is playing. He's in a a movie, Grain of Sand, playing Jack Rollins. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but they never they never cross paths, right? There's Correct. never any, yeah. So, so yeah, it's not so much that I think like you know. So so the the movie isn't like well we're gonna do everything neat. But my problem in watching it again, I think with the Richard Gear Billy the Kid section is. It seems like, at least initially, that that section is setting it up like we're doing allegory here. We're yeah. telling a Bob Dylan story by way of a Western, by way of an old cowboy kind of thing. And it's like, all right, cool. So we don't have to be strictly literal. We don't have to be Bob Dylan's marriage in 1970. We don't have to be Bob Dylan going into the folk scene. We're going to be do- doing something that's more impressionistic something that's just to give you kind of a sense of Dylan. But I feel like it's not really clear what that section is attempting to do. And I think if you're, I could be wrong, but it feels like they're trying to go for something allegorical. And if that's the case, I feel the allegory needs to be much clearer. Again, at the end of the day, this is a movie that's like, we're showing you shades of Bob Dylan. We're just giving you a taste. So no, no, it's, it's going to be one story out of six so even if you gave something that was clear, you have all these other iterations of Dylan that's muddy in the waters. So you're not going to like ruin the purpose of the story if you make that allegory like coherent. Because um, for me, it's just like, all right, so Richard Gere's there, and a, this town is going to get a railroad put through it. And highway. The, uh, okay, highway. And the um, you know the reporter guy is the same actor who plays the reporter comes in as Pat Garrett, his old nemesis. So you play off of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. You play off of Dylan's old nemesis of the reporter in earlier in the film. And so you have these connections, but then it's just sort of, okay, then Dylan gets, or Billy the Kid is arrested, escapes, and goes off to become a new iteration of Dylan or something. But it, it just feels like they're trying to make a case for something or convey something and I don't think it's clear. And they spend a good amount of time on it. And so you're, what, you're just yeah. kind of like, lang- it's well shot. There's some cool moments. Oh, yeah. I like the part where Richard Gears, Billy the Kid, and um, the Woody Guthrie kid meet. And there's like dialogue over top of it from a voiceover saying like, never, you know, never look at yourself. And then Gears like looks away and so they, they do have this moment where he's, like, looking back at himself in the past, and then he just kind of, like, leaves that alone. So there's, like, some cool moments like that. But, yeah, ultimately, I just feel like that section... The movie's experimental. The movie is not trying to give us something neat. 
but I feel that section isn't successful because I'm not even sure what they're going for there, where I do know what they're going for in all the other sections. Even if the Agreed. other sections don't give me a clear-cut answer, I know what direction they're going in. What about the Peckinpah film? Mm-hmm. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? Yeah. Yeah, well, Dylan did the soundtrack for that and, and, and was in it, it, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. not saying it's it's that either, but it just, there's that part of his, it's an attempt at that. Well, they're, they're, well, play, they are, well they're playing off of that, but yeah, yeah. At, but still, I don't know what, what they're trying to necessarily put out there about, about Dylan, because, I mean, that era, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, that was the 70s, so that really overlaps with the dylan marriage stuff mostly yeah and then and this is showing an older dylan and an older dylan is you know closer to when this film came out um you know gears younger here than dylan was but it chronologically it seems like this this is the oldest dylan on screen so it's like is this representative of dylan post christianity you know like once he came back and he's like i'm gonna go back to my roots and like give a shit about music again or like i i don't know and and yeah they mix in the pat garrett stuff but it doesn't it doesn't really make sense with the era i don't think and like i said it's more of just a sort of what's this section trying to be about i think it's it's there are a couple things like in addition to the the obvious tie of pat garrett and billy the kid um there are a lot of bits and pieces of the basement tapes thrown in okay um, like Mrs. Henry, you know, that some of the characters are, um, you know, come from songs in the basement tapes. Uh, there's, there's a lot of that. So it's like Dylan's kind of influence on Americana and that genre. There's Dylan as the outlaw, which I think is what mostly it feels like they're trying to do. Um, for me, I got like a weird connection to that movie masked and anonymous mm-hmm. where like dylan is again he's like the the savior of this ta- of this kind of town a little different different themes but it just i don't i don't think that would have influenced this though because no it, it like didn't 2004 it didn't. or 5 and this was in the works for like six years i read it didn't i'm not saying they influenced each other but I, I'm saying they. It reminded me of mm-hmm. that movie. No, I, I I don't mean to imply that there were influences, sure. but I think it um, it's it just doesn't feel as strong. It just doesn't feel as strong as the rest of as the rest of the yeah. as the rest of the movie. I, I like I like kind of the final bit with Gear, him getting on the train and him dusting off the guitar from his childhood, essentially, and it has the "This Machine Kills Fascists," which was famously on Woody Guthrie's guitar. And so I like the connection back to that. And there's some like um, voiceover that's uh, from Gear talking about like not knowing who he is, being someone different in the morning versus going to bed. And as Matt said earlier, that that's a that's from uh dylan's own writing so i think it wraps things up well but yeah as a viewer even as a dylan fan like i I can only imagine how weird and uncomfortable that section is for people who are just kind of vaguely interested in dylan like because me even as like an uber dylan fan i'm like 
Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. Why is there a giraffe? Uh, what's this about? It looks cool visually, but one thing I do want to one thing I do want to say about uh, that scene is the the performance of going to Acapulco. Um, I think is is very good. Uh, that's 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 one of the highlights of that for me that that whole that whole segment. Yeah, we we haven't touched much on the music, and I, I we're getting along here, so I, I think we need to get closer to the end. But I, I will say that the we've said like that the music in this is great, but beyond that, it's it's interesting because they're even breaking form in how they present the music. Because usually in a musical biopic, you will either do it like a jukebox musical where they will mm-hmm. like have the actual songs by the people that sang them, or you will do it where it's you know people covering and they're doing iterations of dylan or something like walk the line where it's like you have one character who is meant to be johnny cash and he's just re-singing all the songs that we know this does a combination there are periods on the soundtrack where we're listening and it is dylan's master tapes like we we open with um i think it's stuck inside a mobile right mm-hmm um, so we open with that. There's probably seven, eight other times we hear, maybe more, we hear True Blue Dylan songs throughout. But we also get cover versions by people in the movie. Like, not not people in the movie, but like we have people who are covering his songs, like other musicians. And then we get actors within the movie doing the Bob Dylan songs. Most of those actors were dubbed like uh, Kate Blanchett did not sing for Bob Dylan, but neither did Christian Bale, and uh, somebody else was dubbed. So most of most of the actors then aren't actually singing as Dylan. So you bring in this extra element of you have not just six representations of Bob Dylan, you have all these other people, all these other musicians singing Dylan songs, and then you have people giving voice to these actors versions of Dylan's song. So like when you do it like that, it's like the movie isn't really six versions of Bob Dylan. It's probably closer to like 25 if you want to get like crazy into it. Um, but I will say that the one, one actor does perform the actual songs and that's the little boy, Marcus, um, Carl Franklin, Marcus, Carl Franklin. And he does when the ship comes in, and it yes. is one of my favorite Bob Dylan covers by anyone on the planet. Uh, like, completely I lo- agree. I love it's, it. it's absolutely beautiful. And then Richie Havens also yes. uh, performs um, in the movie as well. So, yeah. The, Tombstone the, Blues. The soundtrack uh, is fantastic. It's out there. I mean, there's a lot of big people who are covering songs. There's a lot of like big people within indie scenes and that kind of stuff that are covering songs. It wasn't until I, I own lots of vinyl. It wasn't until after finishing this last night that I was like, "Is this on vinyl?" And lo and behold, it is. And I can't imagine. I can't believe that I never thought to look for it before. But uh, yeah, I'm going to have to get this. Um, so yeah, the uh, the music is terrific. All right. So um, before we get wrapping up here, uh, any other like stray moments we love can be visual based, character based. Anything that really stands out to us. I will say this movie was not kind to the Beatles. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Dylan just uh, hung out and got stoned with them. I think they really did that in real life. 
Well, they did, but they kind of show him. I guess it's kind of playing on the hard day's night vibe yeah. when they're kind of yeah. running around. It's fine. It's fine. Well, the 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 I didn't I didn't take it as a knock against the Beatles, but one of my notes was, uh, I and I don't think I caught this on the original watch through, but Dylan, the Jude Quinn Dylan, is at a party. And with Brian Jones. Brian Jones, which was one of the early members of the Rolling Stones, and yeah. I, I think he died pretty tra- great. died tragically. Um, but Dylan in- Dylan isn't even like trying to be shitty. It's it doesn't seem like the character is like trying to be, but he introduces Brian Jones to someone else at the party. This is Brian Jones from that groovy covers band. And like yeah. it doesn't even seem like he's doing it as a slight. And like, but if you know music, it's like, yeah, early Rolling Stones kind of was that. Yeah. Uh, um, no, that was that was pretty great. You know, and I think about this with that album or the soundtrack too, and the title and how it's like, it's us watching Dylan. It's all us watching Dylan. All these people, you know. And it's about what he means to all these people. And that's why the covers, I think, are so useful. There's some Dylan in there, as you said, but I think the covers are needed and uh, really thematically appropriate because Mm. I think it even goes into the the title of the film. And it's that old... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I'm Not There was a... I think it was an outtake from the Basement Tape Sessions and Mm -hmm. did not appear, was not not published officially until this soundtrack came out. Mm -hmm. And the title, kind of off what you're saying, MJ, uh, uh, like off of the title, so not only do you have I'm Not There being a good representation of like Dylan himself and the goal of this film similar to don't look back or no direction home like all of those titles very much sum up aspects of bob dylan and his life but yeah i'm not there dylan i read i mean i it's something i don't think you would think about watching it but i you know i saw it online it's like oh yeah so the only mention of bob dylan himself is the very beginning says that this film is inspired by the life of bob dylan and then everything in between obviously it's alluding to everything with his life and it's alluding to all these chapters of his life but none of the characters are named that so he's not officially really you know present and then he does finally appear in concert footage at the very end like after we've seen all these different iterations of him he's there at the end and so yeah i I think there's like like you're saying mj kind of a thematic element at play there too there's that whole thing and i I think he represents this as that whole idea of constant performances and then no actual self existing behind them. Just a series of performances or a series of versions or a series of aspects that nothing, then there's no self behind it. There's no point to the solid self. Well, there isn't one. You know, it's all just these different versions of ourselves or the way that we're perceived in various situations. And and it's like performance and perception and all the different layers and aspects that that brings into the equation. So I don't know. I don't know. But I thought about that when you all were talking about the soundtrack too. 
Yeah, for me, I really love Kate Blanchett's, I mean, I love her in the entirety of it, but she has kind of like a final speech in the car, and then she stares directly into the camera in this sort of impish way after saying, anybody who knows me knows I'm not really a folk singer. And it's just sort of this like playful moment and captures Dylan well. And it's it's near the conclusion of the film. So it's sort of like it's that and the Richard Gere part that yeah. are sort of making the, the thesis statement of what we've been watching. And uh, But I think she just plays it beautifully and as she does the entirety of the film. Um, but I just uh, really like that part. And the other part is I, I totally forgot about this or didn't even might not have known at the time. Well, I wouldn't have because I don't think I had seen the other film. But um, the Woody character, when he is riding the rails, he talks about coming from a town called Riddle. And somebody says, is there really a town called Riddle? He's like, oh, it's uh, more of a, somebody says, a composite? Oh, compost heap, more like it. So that dialogue is straight from the film A Face in the Crowd, which regular listeners of ours will know that we looked at that early on, uh, right around the time of the election. Uh, a Face in the Crowd, if you aren't aware, is a fantastic movie, but it is about Andy Griffith, a, an evil version of Andy Griffith, who is kind of like a drifter, music. he's not really a musician, he just knows how to play. Somebody, he knows how to play guitar and he can sing some songs. Somebody finds him and it's his kind of skyrocket to fame and fortune and becoming like a very dark and troubled man. And I don't think the movie is drawing a connection because the, the Griffith character is like a full-on villain in A Face in the Crowd. It's a fantastic movie. But uh, I do think the movie's pulling from that because you have the Woody character especially is sort of trying to make a name for himself, kind of faking a little bit, faking it till he makes it. And since he's coming out of nowhere, supposedly, and that he's like presented as this drifter, it's interesting that they they connect him to a face in the crowd. And then later, the, the Woody character also says the line, Lonesome Roads, We Shall Walk. And Lonesome Roads is actually the name of Andy Griffith's character in a face in the crowd like i mean that's his stage name that oh, he ends up, oh, wow. ends up adopting i did not know that yeah uh you should watch a face in the crowd i think you'd like it a lot matt uh it's you've uh, recommended that to me yeah well yeah it was it's very trumpian that's why we watched mm. it uh for uh, prior to the election but uh yeah give it a watch and uh listen to our episode on it if you haven't it's a great Ilya kazan movie from the 50s Ooh. okay yes yes i wanted to say one thing and that is that Charlotte Gainsbourg's performance, I just think about it all the time. I mentioned her looking at the paintings, mm -hmm. but another moment that I want to talk about is that I think it was, it was such a relief because it's so intensely focused on Dylan that I just loved it is when she reads the letter, you know, and then they make love to say goodbye, but she, especially when she reads the letter and she's like, I need to keep my eyes open now more than ever or something she reads that letter i just thought that was so beautiful and she gets pissed at him for saying that shit about women can't go to the city where's this place i can't go she says i thought that was kind of bullshit he said that to her of course it's false so many great uh artists that are women throughout history and uh, writers painters etc and i think looking at her art within that film is 
in a small way an argument against that, but then also she has such a clear voice uh, during that letter. I don't know, I just love that moment when she reads that. And maybe it, I'm happily married now, although the recording this podcast put that into question. The listeners weren't available for us trying to get me a set of headphones, but so, but I'm happily married, but I had, when this came out, it was just one bad relationship after another. It was like my late 20s, early, late 20s at that time. And I just loved that, um, the ending of their relationship. And I don't know, that was a really beautiful part in it. I thought she was probably my favorite character in the film besides Kate Blanchett. She's very good. Yeah, she's very good. All right, so uh, before we wrap up here, uh, what are some of your favorite Dylan songs? Like anything that you're connected to or, or Dylan types of media, uh, you know, ancillary media related to Dylan. So let's uh, throw those out here. If anyone's interested in digging into more uh, Dylan stuff or just, you know, to kind of uh, comment on our connection with him a little bit. So for me, uh, Tangled Up in Blue is, I think, my favorite song. Um, of, of any of any song yes. of any song of it's any fantastic. song makes of any songwriter. It's it's such good storytelling. That really is a fantastic song. Does not appear in this movie, but other songs mm. of Blood on the Tracks from Blood on the Tracks do, especially around the Heath Ledger scenes, Simple Twist of Fate, which. That whole album, I'm sorry, that whole album is just so good. Going through a divorce myself right now, um, it's, you know, I'm listening to it in different ways. And it just, it's just very powerful. It, it, there's a lot of meaning there. There's a lot of heart. There's a lot of heartbreak in that album. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about your divorce, man. I didn't know that. Uh, no, sure. it's, things will, things will be better, so. Mm -hmm. Thanks for saying that and um, vulnerability there. I appreciate that. I w and I'm going to go along with you. Wait, did I jump on you? Were you? You're fine. Go ahead. I was done. Cool, man. So uh, I would say that I'm going to go along with you on that and say that Planet Waves is my favorite, which I think is also a breakup album. And Never Say Goodbye might be my favorite song of his ever. Uh, what else do I like? I like, I uh, like not dark yet. Quite a not bit. dark yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, some of the later ones, of course. I like all the stuff you mentioned too. I'll say I've I've recently taken another listen to the kind of Christian era of Bob Dylan, and I think um, every grain of sand is really one of the one of the yeah, most beautiful songs too that that he's written there's I, I don't love the christian ones but there's some gems in there and i if, yeah. if memory it's been a while since i've listened to any of them but yeah if memory serves uh, i think that song was particularly good um yeah i've got a bunch i mean i as i said i i own all of the vinyl um but i did when i uh posed this question i was like i had to do it for myself of like well what would i say if i had to boil this down to because I could genuinely name 50 songs that I think are 
as good as anything ever written, but I don't want to sure. do that now. But yeah, for me, like all along the Watchtower, I think is phenomenal. Everybody loves the Jimi Hendrix version, but I think the Dylan version is also amazing and just a stripped down apocalyptic way um, that the Jimi Hendrix is like more fun and like that's cool. But uh, I think the Dylan version is also great. Um, one more cup of coffee is off of Isis, and it's not a super famous Desire. one. Oh, it's a desire. Oh, Isis is on is the song yeah. on Desire. Isis right? Isis is another one of my favorites. I love. I really love the album Desire. Yeah, I think Desire. Okay, is yeah, that, so but it's good. Isis is on Desire, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's where I got mixed up. Um, but one more cup of coffee. I've always felt like it's almost like a sequel or companion piece to All Along the Watchtower. Like it just feels like the same world to me. It feels like, like, cause like All Along the Watchtower, you have these characters who are like approaching the towers. And then in one more cup of coffee, it's like these people going down into the valley below. And there's this foreboding. And I just always connect them like musically and the story that's being presented. Uh, but it's also just a fantastic song. So I love that one. I Want You, I think, is one of the best mm. love songs ever composed. And it's Bob Dylan doing pop better than anyone. Um, showing that he could if he wanted to. Uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile is amazing. Incredibly fun, rollicking Dylan. Not Dark Yet is incredibly emotional. Was written, I think, shortly after Dylan like got seriously ill and was in the hospital and thought he might die i don't know if that song directly was written about that or anything i don't but i don't i don't know that it was written after that but it was certainly released around that time yeah yeah but i mean out of mind came out yeah, yeah. he was regardless just hospitalized it's, it's, for a cardiac yeah, infection it's, yeah it's i mean it's him reflecting on potentially you know just you know life and death and you know he ended up he's he's 80 come may so he's, you know, he's lived well past uh, that, but that was when he was like kind of in his mid to late fifties. Um, so I love those. Uh, if we want to go into some, if you're a casual Dylan fan, some other favorites of mine that are lesser known, Senior Tales of Yankee Power is an incredibly mm. powerful song by him. Great version of that on the soundtrack as well. Yeah. And then, uh, Matt, if you have not heard this one, because you said you haven't dug much into the bootleg stuff, you really need to find Abandoned Love. It might... Oh, I've heard that. ...crush you emotionally, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I've, I've heard Abandoned uh, Love. Yeah. yeah, so Abandoned Love was one of the songs Dylan wrote about the dissolution of his marriage. It's gorgeous mm. and heartbreaking. It was not released on the album. It was planned for... But it was later released on like a compilation called Biograph. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about that story is that song is it's not just a great song in its own, you know, master recording. Supposedly, he has only performed it live once. There is a bootleg, like raw version of him uh, performing it. And supposedly, and they're like Dylan people who like know every, unofficial every, and an unofficial yeah. bootleg. Yeah. Right, but but I'm well. I mean, most bootlegs are. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, not to be confused with the Bob Dylan bootleg right. series, which is yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But a lot of those bootlegs started. The bootleg series started as those were bootlegged before. Yeah. But we're getting into Dylan shit. Um, but yeah, uh, supposedly he's only performed it once in public, and I'm of the belief it's because it's too painful. Because if you listen to that song and know it's about his marriage, 
breaking up and that song is gorgeous and haunting i i mean he sings so many other songs about the loss of his marriage but i think there's something about that one that he because like why why else and he he sings songs from all over his career like he doesn't mm-hmm. just like play the hits he'll play obscure shit if you go to a show so yeah, yeah supposedly he has only replayed that once live which i think is fascinating because it's just fucking raw so look up both versions the the studio recording and the live version uh last thoughts on woody guthrie is not a song but a poem and is a beautiful beautiful poem do you know that one matt i do one of one of two original songs on his first album um well no it's not on an album or I'm sorry. I, I'm confused with. Uh, I got that confused with song, song to Woody song, Guthrie. Yeah, song to Woody. Guthrie. Yes. No. Uh, I do know what you're talking about, and yeah. I have heard it. Yes. Yeah. Last thoughts on Woody Guthrie is like a seven or eight minute poem, and I don't remember yeah. where he read it, but it's just it's one of it's an amazing performance. Uh, it's live. Um, mm-hmm. It was released on some of like the bootleg recordings and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just a gorgeous poem. And uh, probably one of my favorite poems, period. I'll also throw out Blind Willie McTell was an amazing song that was cut from an album as well and now has reached sort of this cult status and is often seen as one of his best songs he ever wrote that is largely about, like, African-American experience in America um, or at least touches on those elements. Um, It is incredibly powerful and dark and moving. Um so that's kind of my list of like some some Dylan uh, offshoots that are worth looking up that aren't uh, super famous, but I will throw out my favorite song of all time, not just of Dylan, but like Matt uh, with uh, Tangled Up in Blue, is Mr. Tambourine Man, which I could listen to anytime, any place, and enjoy it, and then its connection to Fear and Loathing. Um, you know, both the book and the film certainly uh, mm-hmm. amps it up some as well. But it's just beautiful music, fantastic performance, and then some of the best lyrics that he ever wrote. Matt, for those for those interested, last thoughts on Woody Guthrie uh, can be heard on the Bootleg series, Volume One through Three. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of these are are in there as well. But some of them, like I said, Abandoned Love was on Biograph. And uh, and then the the bootleg version, the live version. I don't I don't know if it's ever been released officially on I don't anything, think so. but it but it's floating out there. And then Blind Willie McTell was maybe included on Biograph or something. But all these things can be found if you look up on YouTube. You can find somebody right. has uploaded it. Uh, but yeah, Mr. Tambourine Man for me. And then I would be remiss if I did not mention Theme Time Radio Hour which is oh, fantastic. a fantastic show that Bob Dylan did from 2006 to 2009, I believe. He did 100 episodes where they were roughly hour-long episodes each time, and every time would be a different theme, and this was on, like, uh, Sirius Radio, I think. And then mm-hmm. people bootlegged it, and you can find torrents and other sites that have posted stuff where they just have the entirety of these shows because otherwise, if you didn't have Sirius at the time, there was no way to hear them. And uh, yeah, I got I got XM Radio at that time just so I could listen to Theme Time Radio Hour. Yeah, and they're uh, they're not commercially available. I think they released maybe one or two as like kind of special things. But the problem is that because the radio shows, it's it's Dylan doing a radio show and introducing. So they'll do Halloween or they'll do coffee or whatever the theme is. 
and then they just pull songs from like the 1920s to present day and it and then it's him doing little like jokes and like commentary on the songs and like uh do talking about aspects of Halloween. like i have a track in my itunes it's bob dylan talking about werewolves which is one of my favorite things it's also another one where he talks about batman and i remember it's like uh i uh I always thought Batman was more interesting because you have to have, like, powers to be Superman or someone, but anyone could be Batman, and you know I try. And, like, so it's that kind of weird shit. Um, But, yeah, there's 100 episodes, tons of content to work through. So if you're listening to this podcast, um, this is something that you could track down uh, if you, like, drive around a lot or something. It's incredibly worth it if you're a music fan. It's very interesting. And then they did a... There was like a Kiss episode that came out a few years ago that was like a leftover, and then he recorded a new one recently for the first time since like 2009, and I actually haven't listened to it yet, um, but that was on Whiskey, and I think it was because he was releasing a a, a Whiskey, and so they did like us, they came back to do one episode. So those shows are fantastic. You'll find all kinds of music you've never heard of. You'll find all kinds of artists you've never heard of. Uh, it's a whole rabbit hole if you are a music fan. And like I said, it's not commercially available anyway. So, you know, to be able to hear it, you're going to have to, like, hit up the dark web and track it down. But, like, you you got to do it if you're a music fan. Um, I'll also say a, a professor in college, when it was coming out, he was a big fan of Dylan and that show. And I remember him saying like how fascinating it was that Dylan was doing it because he was saying it's like if Shakespeare had a radio show and he's not wrong. It's like Dylan is this amazing public figure that has had huge impact on art and music. And we know him as a musician and as a songwriter. And then all of a sudden somebody hits him up. Hey, do you want to do this radio show? And then it's this guy who knows so much about music, who's a supreme talent himself now doing this show and usually that kind of shit doesn't happen and so i think i think it has a niche audience just because dylan himself you know has a little more of a niche audience than like the beatles or whatever and then it's also it was on xm radio or sirius or whatever it was and like so it had a very limited exposure so i don't know how many people have actually dug into it but it's uh it's a phenomenal listen I'm running on at the mouth here about it, but those are some of my favorite Bob Dylan uh, uh, things that are out there uh, floating around in the media. His Chronicles book is also quite good. His Have uh, you read Tarantula? I have read Tarantula. I read it in college. I remember not really liking it. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Um, I've read like Positively uh, Main Street. And Positively Main Street is a good uh, – that's a good – good account yeah down the highway of life i think was the biography i read and that covered like his whole career i read that i think in college i think that's what it's called and that was pretty good and comprehensive and anyway i'm going on and on but uh we need to wrap up here so that's uh that's some of our commentary on uh bob dylan the man the master the myth uh would you recommend i'm not there yeah and I'm sorry, I've had to pee so badly for like half an hour, but I didn't want to fuck up your guys's. But yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, I would I would not recommend it as an entry point. Uh, look to uh, 
Don't Look Back, which is a fantastic example of uh, cinema verite. Um, look, go to uh, watch No Direction Home. Watch those first, and then once you're into it, you can watch this. Yeah, I I would highly recommend it for Dylan fans for sure. I would recommend it for big music fans, um, and also people who like more experimental, interesting films. This is not a recommend it to your aunt kind of movie or like go watch this Bob Dylan thing, um, you know. So it, it you, you there there's a, a certain literature you need to be steeped in, whether it's Dylan's history or his music or both or or film, kind of the way film works. It requires some uh, some background reading in a way. Um, so yeah, but uh, but I, I I enjoy it quite a bit. It's a very interesting experience and watch as a visual and auditory experience. I think it's uh, it's quite good. As for can I find this? Um, yeah, this one is actually out there in a lot of different iterations. You can find it, you know, a streaming or purchase the file through iTunes, Apple TV, YouTube, Google Play, Amazon, and probably many others. It is on DVD, but the Blu-ray does seem to be kind of tricky. I, I did get a copy maybe a year ago, but it seems like the Blu-ray, I don't know if it's ever been released on American Blu-ray, which kind of sucks. It's, it's in a lot of other countries, and then there's a Region 1 Blu-ray that I have that's Canadian, so it will still play on Blu-ray players, but uh, I don't know if they've ever actually released this to American Blu-ray, because uh, this one, like, it also has, like, the French title on the side, and you, uh, the only the only subtitles were in French, but then they didn't even work. So, anyway, uh, I so I don't know if they ever released this on American Blu-ray, which is not terribly surprising considering that it cost $20 million and it made 10 ish that they're probably like, ah, no one's going to buy this. Um, but yeah, so it, it is out there, but some of these are a bit costlier. And then, you know, like I said, the region issue is another thing that you have to be mindful of. If you have a region-free Blu-ray player, then it you know won't matter. You can get any of these. But um, but that is kind of an oddity for this one, that there's so many different versions, but just not a good one for the American market. All right, so that is our wrap-up for I'm Not There. We will be back next time and switching gears. We are going to be looking at the very recent film, Wendy, from 2020, which is a kind of modern riff on the Peter Pan story. So we'll be back with kind of our, uh, our fantasy crew that has done many of our other fantasy-based films. So we'll be looking at that next. See you then.